Uber is really in the physical world. The decisions that our machine learning methods have to help with are decisions that really matter to people. They're decisions that um, revolve around things like whether somebody's going to get from one place to another in time, or whether they're going to be able to make an income on the platform, or whether their ride is as safe as possibly can be. Listening to Innovators, brought to you by Wing Venture Capital. I am your host, Zach DeWitt. Today, we are joined by Zubin Garamani, the Chief Scientist and VP of AI for Uber. Zubin has been with Uber for three years, and prior to joining Uber, he was an entrepreneur and a professor at the University of Cambridge. Zubin has an incredibly important job to apply AI to both help Uber improve its safety, product experience, and feature set, as well as introduce new products and services. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation, as Zubin has unique insights on how one of the world's largest companies is using AI. Okay, welcome to Innovators. Very exciting to be speaking with you today. It would be great if you could please introduce yourself. So I'm Zubin Garamani. I'm... uh... Chief Scientist and VP for AI at Uber. And Zubin, you have a really interesting background. It'd be great if you could share with our listeners what you were doing before joining Uber and how long you've been here. Yeah, so I've been at Uber for about three years, and um, I sort of landed here almost accidentally, let's say. So um, uh, I'm uh, an academic. Most of my career has been in universities at uh uh, in London, at CMU, at Cambridge. And um, I really thought, uh, sort of growing up, actually wanted to do AI. It wasn't called machine learning back then, but I wanted to do AI when I was 14, and so I'm kind of doing it still. Um, I also got interested in neuroscience, so my PhD was in neuroscience. And uh, I went through an academic career thinking, well, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my working life. But out of just intellectual curiosity, you know, how do we understand the brain from engineering principles, how do we build machines that are intelligent? Now, uh, about 10 years ago, what was kind of just a really interesting academic discipline started becoming incredibly useful and valuable to industry. So a whole bunch of startups popped up, a whole bunch of the big tech companies started getting interested and investing in AI. And um, I spent more and more of my time uh, advising startups, advising big tech companies, uh, understanding the sort of industrial landscape for AI and machine learning, and uh, ended up founding a company called Geometric Intelligence that was acquired by Uber. So that's sort of the (laughs) beginning of my stay at Uber. That was a little over three years ago. And um, it it was very interesting because... When we were building this AI company, it was very clear that out of like the big companies out there, there were sort of two classes. One is companies that had already made large investments in AI. They were already sort of leading in this space. They sort of knew what they were doing. There are also a whole bunch of companies out there, and they, there still are many, many companies out there where somebody, the CEO, CTO, 
really knows they need AI, but they don't actually know how to use it, where it's going to be used. And Uber was just in this fantastic sweet spot where this is a company that's sort of revolutionizing the way people and things move around in the world. And AI has an incredible role right at the heart of that, but they just didn't have the investment in AI research and technology at the time. So that's when we came in and it's been an unbelievably exciting ride for three years. So you've had a really interesting and uh, relevant journey uh, through you know, working in artificial intelligence in many different ways, getting your PhD um, ac- as an academic, studying and teaching, uh, certainly as an entrepreneur, and now applying artificial intelligence at a massive scale. So w- what have been some of the challenges about uh, those various transitions? Yeah, um, it's been fascinating. So I feel like I've um, started all over again. Uh, in some ways, it's, uh, I've told people being, being at Uber is like getting another PhD, but at a very fast pace. The way I put it is, as an academic, you, um, you push the frontiers of research. You write papers, you have students, your papers get cited. It feels like impact, but you don't actually really know, even if a paper has a thousand people citing it, you don't know if it's, if it's useful. You don't know if anybody's using it, really. It's just other people citing it. It's like a kind of like viral social network. That's how academia is. So when I came here, the challenge I posed myself was, so all this stuff I've learned, all this stuff I've done in research, is it actually useful? And then if it is, can we prove that out at scale at a company like this, which is interacting with? hundreds of millions of people and, um, you know, doing billions of rides and eats and freight and all these other things. So really global, really in the physical world. And, uh, you know, one of the things I learned was many of the things I learned as an academic were not useful. To get stuff to work in industry, you have to focus on somewhat different things. There are many organizational challenges The cutting edge ideas are sometimes incredibly valuable and oftentimes not really necessary. It's about implementation, execution, having the right team, motivating the right team, and and delivering the highest value products. One of the ways I describe the difference between academia and industry is that academia fundamentally is in some ways selfless because you produce for the common good You put your things out for everybody to read, but it's driven by somewhat selfish agents in that each academic is trying to push the research so that, you know, they get more papers out, more citations and so on. So teamwork is important, but fundamentally each academic is kind of responsible for their own success, right? Industry is flipped around. So companies are set up to, at some level, maximize the value that they produce in the world. So think of it almost as a big selfish entity. But within a company, what you have is a lot of, within a good company, what you have is a lot of selfless team effort to sort of create that value that the company is producing. So it's sort of selfless on the inside. And that's another interesting lesson that uh, I've learned, and including when hiring people into the company. Like, you want people who really will be good team players, who really will try to deliver for that final good. 
So a question I'm curious to know is at a high level, what is, and this is a two layer question, what is Uber's strategy with artificial intelligence? And, and, and the first layer is, you know, what strategically, what are they trying to do in terms of product, how to, you know, how to make more sense of their data? And then a second question is more of an implementation question. How do they actually do this? I mean, you, you, do you integrate um, data scientists and, and machine learning engineers throughout the organization? Do you have a separate, you know, head of AI? You know, how, how do you actually make that work once you set the strategy? Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of strategy, when I tell people I work at, uh, at Uber in AI, people often immediately assume that I'm working on self-driving cars, autonomous vehicles. And actually, interestingly, um, I'm not. So there is a, a whole nother large part of the company that is completely dedicated to the mission of bringing autonomous, autonomous vehicles to the world. And they have their own research lab and so on. And of course, I interact closely with them. I communicate with them. But my scope within the company, you could think of as AI and machine learning for everything else, for the sort of core of the business. So that's sort of how we've organized. And within that uh, business, and you have to remember that Uber, you know, we have the rides business, we have the eats business, we have freight, um, sort of matching truck drivers to loads uh, all over the U.S. and uh, you know Canada and now Europe. We have uh, bikes and scooters. We have Uber Elevate, which is aerial ride sharing. Yes, yeah, so all the, the the CES presentation. Of oh that, that yeah, was so neat, amazing yeah. stuff. You know, <laughs> the Elevate team uh, I've I've known for a long time because they used to sit right next to us, and it's just wonderful to see what's going on there. So there is a there is a huge number of things that we're doing at Uber, but when you boil down the scope of what is AI for all of those different things. You have to ask yourself, what do we mean by AI? And what we take is a very inclusive definition of what we mean by AI. So anything that goes from data to models and algorithms that make predictions and optimize decisions counts in some way as a form of AI or machine learning. So data-driven predictions and uh, optimized decisions. And with that broad definition of AI, it's everywhere in the company. So, you know, whether we're talking about modeling ETAs, traffic, uh, events, the complex dynamics of cities, uh, predicting driver supply and rider demand so that we can match the two to optimize the marketplace, understanding our customers through natural language interactions and conversational systems, fraud detection, security applications, using sensor data to sort of enhance the experience for people and make it as safe as we possibly can, you know, optimizing pricing and incentives. All of these things are some forms of AI broadly defined. Now, the AI community within um, Uber includes data scientists, um, research scientists, machine learning engineers, uh, other kinds of research engineers, um, economists, optimization people, behavioral scientists. It's sort of a very broad community of people. And ultimately, what we do is we uh, bring those teams together to uh, produce value for the different parts of our um, sort of mission in the world. 
Uh, I want to say one other thing about kind of what makes Uber just really exciting and incredibly attractive from the point of view of AI. So there, um, there are a lot of big tech companies that people are familiar with that have made big AI investments. But often those tech companies live on the screen, right? So they live mostly in the virtual world. So they're, they're looking at um, the uses of AI and machine learning for uh, search or ranking or advertising. The interactions are sort of um, in the virtual world. Uber is really in the physical world. The decisions that our machine learning methods um, have to help with are decisions that really matter to people. They're decisions that um, revolve around things like whether somebody's going to get from one place to another in time, or whether they're going to be able to make an income on the platform, or whether their ride is as safe as possibly can be, right? So I find that that challenge of doing AI and machine learning in the spatio-temporal physical world just unbelievably exciting because we can really use this to make people's lives safer, more efficient, optimize the world, create income opportunities for people. And it's, um, it's super challenging as well. Yeah, I, I mean, Uber's come so far. I remember in 2010, 11, when it launched, I was living in San Francisco and was lucky enough to be one of the first riders. And it's come such a long way. And you talked about all the different areas in the product that Uber can continue to use artificial intelligence, machine learning to optimize and improve. Do you also see, so those, do you see step function uh, changes or, 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 or product features that machine learning and AI will enable Uber to do over the next, you know, next couple of years? You can't obviously talk too much forward looking statements, yeah, but uh, as yeah. a public company, but going beyond optimization, do you see do you really transforming yeah. the company? I think that's a really great distinction to make. And in fact, it's something that um, I've worked on within my org and my team to think about. So broadly speaking, AI and machine learning can do two things. One of them is take existing processes and make them more efficient. And sometimes those efficiencies at scale can be enormous, right? If you multiply anything by billions of rides, a few seconds saved means a lot to the world. A few cents saved means a lot to the world. So that's a sort of optimization squeeze. And we're constantly doing that. The other side is entirely new experiences, right? Things that were not possible before that are suddenly possible. And I'm, you know, uh, I'll use examples from other companies, but clearly like, you know, the existence of assistance in the home is a, a big step change where we didn't really have any usable sure. conversational assistance in the home. And now, you know, there are several different good options and, you know, things like translation, a lot around language technologies and so on. So these are big step changes. And of course, we need to do both. So our team is focused on rather split between both optimizing the existing business, and there's a huge amount of value there, but also being on the forefront of thinking about new things we can do. Some of the new things we can do revolve around one of the um, real kinds of value that we can provide, which is real safety. People say, like 10 years ago before Uber existed, the concept of like getting in, in a car with a person you don't know 
at odd hours of the day or whatever just seem crazy, mm -hmm. right? But Uber has shown that, you know, it is possible to do that and uh, to make it a viable, safe method of transportation. Of course, when you scale things to billions of rides, uh, you will have, unfortunately, safety incidents. But technology can really help that. Mm -hmm. So that is both, both, you know, you can squeeze the numbers down and just make rides more and more safe. But you can also introduce, you know, larger scale innovations that make a step change in safety. And so those are some of the things that are certainly exciting from a real world AI application perspective. So you have a huge job, and I mean that in terms of the, the scale and the impact you have, and also just the responsibilities. Um, what, what are some of the, the challenges of, of being the AI leader at a company as large and global as Uber? Yeah, it's, um, there are a couple of different classes of challenges. One of them is there are so many places where machine learning and AI are applicable that it's almost like, you know, being a kid in a candy store, right? You know, there are too many opportunities. And so we have to be um, fairly rigorous about how we prioritize what we do. And, you know, sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. We also have to have a portfolio of bets because not everything will always work. And so we will spread our bets across a number of different places where we think we might be able to produce some value for, uh, for the world and the company. So one of them is that um, difficulty of choice the other thing is that to actually have an impact requires a lot of organizational alignment, right? So the ability to have my teams working with other teams on joint projects with joint targets and having buy-in from partners in a landscape like Uber's, which is often changing quite quickly, right? Uber's changed a lot in the last... Um, even the last three years I've been here. So just managing those kind of organizational alignment issues is another interesting challenge. And, and you know, those are sort of the two main sort of challenges, the challenge of choice and the challenge of alignment. The third thing that I think I'll mention is, so my scope includes both a team that goes all the way from fundamental research to engineering teams that are really uh, building out platforms and services for other uh, internal customers. And so uh, to span everything from basic research in AI to these like somewhat critical platforms and services uh, is itself an interesting challenge. And uh, I've looked around at what other companies do, and there are various failure modes for research labs. So the, on the basic research side, one failure mode for a research lab is you give them a lot of freedom, which is a good thing because then you can attract really good people, but you sort of isolate them. You, you, maybe, maybe there's a founder or CEO kind of mandate that AI is cool, we need to invest in AI, let's go set up a lab, let's put it in some city somewhere, they go do some stuff. How do you get them to have an impact for the company? It's very hard. Once you set up a culture like that, then it becomes a sort of well-funded almost like university department, right? Um, so that's one failure mode for research labs. And one of the things we did from the very beginning of Uber AI Labs when we were founded is uh, we set up shop on the main floor of the headquarters where the CEO and all of the other leads at the company were. 
And so we were like in the middle of stuff. We couldn't like ignore the fact that we were part of a business. <laughs> and many of the AI research labs sort of do ignore the fact that they're part of a business. That's one failure mode. At the other extreme, there's a different kind of failure mode, which is, well, AI is important, but each of the different lines of business and each of the products and teams needs one or two machine learning people. So let's just take this talent and let's kind of embed everybody in different teams and they'll just execute whatever needs to be done. That failure mode is more tricky because what happens in that failure mode is, first of all, you don't build a community. So the people that you have there, they're like one or two experts within a larger team. Um, if they don't feel part of a community, they'll just move on somewhere else where they can be part of a community. The other thing is that it actually ends up being not so effective, not as effective as a sort of business-minded person might think. Because then what you end up doing is you target those machine learning and AI folks to hit whatever business metrics that product team or whatever is trying to deliver in that quarter or that half or that year. And it removes some of that oxygen that you need to make those step changes, to really think about planning for the future, to really invest in the technology that might have an impact, not this year, but next year. And so that failure mode, I also think, is, um, is problematic. So um, I'm quite proud of the fact that I feel like we've actually managed to walk the fine line between these two. And we have a place where we have fundamental research with people publishing, interacting with the academic community, but completely tied into engineering teams and so on that are embedding into uh, like other product teams and so on. You made some really interesting points about talent. And a lot of the guests we have in this podcast will be a leader of a high growth tech company. And they're, you know, they, they talk over and over how hard it is to hire really good research and machine learning talent. Yeah. I'd love for you just to elaborate a little bit on that. You know, sitting in Uber, everyone knows Uber. Every, you know, so many engineers want to work at Uber. Is talent within AI a challenge for Uber? Oh, yeah. No, talent is, um, I think talent is a, is a challenge, you know, even for, even for the best tech companies. What you have to do, there are a few tricks basically. So one of them is you have to build a reputation and a brand, right? And you have to maintain that. And one of the ways um, we've done that is we have some fairly well-known senior leaders in the field. So you need to sort of invest in some of those people. You need to give them a fair amount of freedom. You need to have a presence in the academic environment, whether it's with university collaborations or conferences, certainly publishing papers, you know, potential candidate will do two things. One of them is if they're sort of research minded, they'll look to see what you've published in the past and they'll look to ask in an interview, am I going to be able to publish papers if I come here? But you also have to inspire them with a mission. And, um, you know, I feel like uh, we can certainly do that at Uber for all the reasons I've, I've talked about. We've spent quite a lot of effort on, on building and maintaining that presence in the sort of academic world where, uh, according to some metric I saw recently, we're one of the top 10 companies publishing in AI or machine learning. I'm sure you can, you know, <laughs> play around with those metrics and make it different. We have a fairly small investment, so I'm pretty happy about that. I think we hit above our weight in terms of that. 
but the the talent acquisition for research scientists is very hard. I feel like it might be easing up a little bit, honestly. There was a frenzy, but now the sort of I, I think a lot often in terms of supply and demand. Sure. The supply is increasing because universities are producing more PhDs. It's a high-paying field. And, yeah. It's a high-paying field. The signal goes back. The sort of machine learning courses are like the biggest course on campus, <laughs> right? Crazy things I never imagined when I was younger would happen. So supply is increasing and then demand is cooling off a little bit because... You know, certainly the big players are pretty stocked up in terms of machine learning talent. Maybe the sort of the next batch of big companies and also small startups are, are really trying to hire. Also, people are expensive in this area, right? I mean, every company is different. You've been an entrepreneur yourself. When is the right time as a startup to invest heavily in an in artificial intelligence machine learning? Is it, is, you know, is it imperative to have that in the DNA of the founding team? Is that something you can tack on, you know, when you're a couple hundred people? I mean, Uber yeah. is making a heavy investment and it's going to be critical to Uber's kind of next product phase and improvements. You know, wh- how do you think about the, when yeah. you put it into the stage of a company? I've had my own startup, but I've also advised a lot of startups in the past as an academic who's sort of like, I was thinking of advising startups a little bit like advising PhD students, right? They, they come in, they have questions, you help them out, you answer some questions for them, they, you help them hire and so on. And uh, the good, part of the good news is that the community is very open in the sense that a lot of stuff is being published openly. It's not a secretive community. It's not like quantitative finance or something where sure. everybody tries to keep their secrets to themselves. Um, sort of overgeneralizing maybe, but, and also there are a tremendous number of open source tools from big companies and small companies. And so getting started in AI or machine learning involves making sure that you have at least somebody who knows what's the right tool for the problem at hand, and also somebody who can bring in and maintain some of those open source software environments and packages, Mm -hmm. including, you know, you can go to sort of vendors that are out there, like, you know, the major cloud vendors are doing this, but you do need that expert. And the, um, at what point do you need that? Well, it depends on what your company is doing. I mean, I attended an event where a whole bunch of startups, this was a few years ago, a whole bunch of startups were pitching what they're doing. They were like, I don't know, 30 startups and, 27 of them said they were AI startups, right? And really all they meant is there was some data somewhere in what they were doing. Some algorithm, yeah. Some data, maybe some algorithm if you're (laughs) lucky. Um, So not everything is an AI startup, but every, you know, every tech company of of any kind these days has data somewhere in it. And if you want to extract value from that data, you need tools. Machine learning is, you know, part of that whole ecosystem of value from data. And so at that point, then you need a, a data science expert or a machine learning expert. And the qualities that you need in that person, I would say, if you're going to hire your first machine learning or data science person, the qualities you would look for are knowledge and open-mindedness. That's right. And so knowledge means like actually having breadth of knowledge on what, what is out there, because it's not all deep learning, for example. Like, you know, deep learning is a hot thing, but if you have... A recent PhD who's only studied deep learning and doesn't really know how to do a proper linear regression or causal analysis or t-test or something like that, they're not actually that useful. The other thing is, 
you know, the open-mindedness is also related to that. So you need to, you need to know a fair, fair number of tools, and then you need to think backwards from the problem. Sure. So not like hammer, how, what can I hit with this hammer, but, you know, what is the actual problem that is being solved and being sort of problem-driven? And so those are the skills I would look for. And, you know, probably pretty early on, you want to have somebody who's on top of your data and thinking about it. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Zubin. Please reach out to me on Twitter at Zachary DeWitt, as I would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to Innovators. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I would greatly appreciate if you could share our podcast with one person who you think would greatly enjoy hearing about how the next wave of business leaders is using applied AI to reshape our business economy. You can reach me on Twitter at Zachary DeWitt or email me at Zach at wing.vc.